these problems inevitably turn into interruptions for the designer, and now those interruptions are interfering with the next large batch the designer is supposed to be working on. If the drawings need to be redone, the engineers may become idle while they wait for the rework to be completed. If the designer is not available, the engineers may have to redo the designs themselves. This is why so few products are actually built the way they are designed. When I work with product managers and designers in companies that use large batches, I often discover that they have to redo their work five or six times for every release. One product manager I worked with was so inundated with interruptions that he took to coming into the office in the middle of the night so that he could work uninterrupted. When I suggested that he try switching the work process from large batch to single piece flow, he refused, because that would be inefficient. So strong is the instinct to work in large batches, that even when a large batch system is malfunctioning, we have a tendency to blame ourselves. Large batches tend to grow over time. Because moving the batch forward often results in additional work, rework, delays, and interruptions, everyone has an incentive to do work in ever larger batches, trying to minimize this overhead. This is called the large batch death spiral because, unlike in manufacturing, there are no physical limits on the maximum size of a batch. 6. It is possible for batch size to keep growing and growing. Eventually, 1. Batch will become the highest priority project, a bet the company knew. Version of the product, because the company has taken such a long time since the last release. But now the managers are incentivized to increase batch size rather than ship the product. In light of how long the product has been in development, why not fix one more bug or add one more feature? Who really wants to be the manager who risked the success of this huge release by failing to address a potentially critical flaw? I worked at a company that entered this death spiral. We had been working for months on a new version of a really cool product. The original version had been years in the making, and expectations for the next release were incredibly high. But the longer we worked, the more afraid we became of how customers would react when they finally saw the new version. As our plans became more ambitious, so too did the number of bugs, conflicts, and problems we had to deal with. Pretty soon we got into a situation in which we could not ship anything. Our launch date seemed to recede into the distance. The more work we got done, the more work we had to do. The lack of ability to ship eventually precipitated a crisis and a change of management, all because of the trap of large batches. These misconceptions about batch size are incredibly common. Hospital Pharmacies often deliver big batches of medications to patient floors once a day because it's efficient, a single trip, right? But many of those meds get sent back to the pharmacy when a patient's orders have changed or the patient is moved or discharged, causing the pharmacy staff to do lots of rework and reprocessing, or trashing, of meds. Delivering smaller batches every four hours reduces the total workload for the pharmacy and ensures that the right meds are at the right place when needed. Hospital lab blood collections often are done in hourly batches, phlebotomists collect blood for an hour from multiple patients and then send or take all the samples to the lab. This adds to turnaround time for test results and can harm test quality. It has become common for hospitals to bring small batches, two patients, or a single patient flow of specimens to the lab even if they have to hire an extra phlebotomist or two to do so. Because the total system cost is lower. Paul, don't push. Let's say you are out for a drive, pondering the merits of small batches, and find yourself accidentally putting a dent in your new 2011 blue Toyota Camry. You take it into the dealership for repair and wait to hear the bad. News. The repair technician tells you that you need to have the bumper replaced. He goes to check their inventory levels and tells you he has a new bumper in stock and they can complete your repair immediately. This is good news for everyone you because you get your car back sooner and the dealership because they have a happy customer and don't run the risk of your taking the car somewhere else for repair. Also, they don't have to store your car or give you a loaner while they wait for the part to come in. In traditional mass production, 
The way to avoid stockouts, not having the product the customer wants, is to keep a large inventory of spares just in case. It may be that the blue 2011 Camry bumper is quite popular, but what about last year's model or the model from five years ago? The more inventory you keep, the greater the likelihood you will have the right product in stock for every customer. But large inventories are expensive. Because they have to be transported, stored, and tracked. What if the 2011 bumper turns out to have a defect? All the spares in all the warehouses instantly become waste. Lean production solves the problem of stockouts with a technique called pull. When you bring a car into the dealership for repair, one blue 2011 Camry bumper gets used. This creates a hole in the dealer's inventory, which automatically causes a signal to be sent to a local restocking facility called the Toyota Parts Distribution Center. PDC. The PDC sends the dealer a new bumper, which creates another hole in inventory. This sends a similar signal to a regional warehouse called the Toyota Parts Redistribution Center, PRC, where all parts suppliers ship their products. That warehouse signals the factory where the bumpers are made to produce one more bumper, which is manufactured and shipped to the PRC. The ideal goal is to achieve small batches all the way down to single-piece flow along the entire supply chain. Each step in the line pulls the parts it needs from the previous step. This is the famous Toyota just-in-time production method. When companies switch to this kind of production, their warehouses immediately shrink, as the amount of just-in-case inventory, called working progress, WIP, inventory, is reduced dramatically. This almost magical shrinkage of WIP is where lean manufacturing gets its name. It's as if the whole supply chain suddenly went on a diet. Startups struggle to see their work in progress inventory. When factories have excess WIP, it literally piles up on the factory floor. Because most startup work is intangible, it's not nearly as visible. For example, all the work that goes into designing the minimum viable product is, until the moment that product is shipped, just WIP inventory. Incomplete designs, not yet validated assumptions, and most business plans are WIP. Almost every lean startup technique we've discussed so far works its magic in two ways, by converting push methods to pull and reducing batch size. Both have the net effect of reducing WIP. In manufacturing, Pull is used primarily to make sure production processes are tuned to levels of customer demand. Without this, factories can wind up making much more or much less of a product than customers really want. However, applying this approach to developing new products is not straightforward. Some people misunderstand the lean startup model as simply applying pull to customer wants. This assumes that customers could tell us what products to build and that this would act as the pull signal to product development to make them. As was mentioned earlier, this is not the way the lean startup model works, because customers often don't know what they want. Our goal in building products is to be able to run experiments that will help us learn how to build a sustainable business. Thus, the right way to think about the product development process in a lean startup is that it is responding to pull requests in the form of experiments that need to be run. As soon as we formulate a hypothesis that we want to test, the product development team should be engineered to design and run this experiment as quickly as possible, using the smallest batch size that will get the job done. Remember that although we write the feedback loop as build measure, Learn because the activities happen in that order, our planning really works in the reverse order, we figure out what we need to learn and then work backwards to see what product will work as an experiment to get that learning. Thus, it is not the customer, but rather our hypothesis about the customer, that pulls work from product development and other functions. Any other work is waste. Hypothesis pull in clean tech. To see this in action, let's take a look at Barclay-based startup Alphabet Energy. Any machine or process that generates power, whether it is a motor in a factory or a coal-burning power plant, generates heat as a byproduct. Alphabet Energy has developed a product that can generate electricity from this waste heat, 
using a new kind of material called a thermoelectric. Alphabet Energy's thermoelectric material was developed over 10 years by scientists at the Lawrence Barclay National Laboratories. As with many clean technology products, there are huge challenges in bringing a product like this to market. While working through its leap of faith assumptions, Alphabet figured out early that developing a solution for waste thermoelectricity required building a heat exchanger and a generic device to transfer heat from one medium to another as well as doing project-specific engineering. For instance, if Alphabet wanted to build a solution for a utility such as Pacific Gas and Electric, the heat exchanger would have to be configured, shaped, and installed to capture the heat from a power plant's exhaust system. What makes Alphabet Energy unique is that the company made a savvy decision early on in the research process. Instead of using relatively rare elements as materials, they decided to base their research on silicon wafers, the same physical substance that computer central processing units, CPUs, are made from. As CEO Matthew Scullin explains, our thermoelectric is the only one that can use low-cost semiconductor infrastructure for manufacturing. This has enabled Alphabet Energy to design and build its products in small batches. By contrast, most successful clean technology startups have had to make substantial early investments. The solar panel provider SunPower had to build in factories to manufacture its panels and partner with installers before becoming fully operational. Similarly, BrightSource raised $291 million to build and operate large-scale solar plants without delivering a watt to a single customer. Instead of having to invest time and money in expensive fabrication facilities, Alphabet is able to take advantage of the massive existing infrastructure that produces silicon wafers for computer electronics. As a result, Alphabet can go from a product concept to holding a physical version in its hand in just six weeks from end to end. Alphabet's challenge has been to find the combination of performance, price, and physical shape that is a match for early customers. Although its technology has revolutionary potential, early adopters will deploy it only if they can see a clear return on investment. It might seem that the most obvious market for Alphabet's technology would be power plants, and indeed, that was the team's initial hypothesis. Alphabet hypothesized that simple cycle gas turbines would be an ideal application, these turbines, which are similar to jet engines strapped to the Ground are used by power generators to provide energy for peak demand. Alphabet believed that attaching its semiconductors to those turbines would be simple and cheap. The company went about testing this hypothesis in small batches by building small-scale solutions for its customers as a way of learning. As with many initial ideas, their hypothesis was disproved quickly. Power companies have a low tolerance for risk, making them unlikely to become early adopters. Because it wasn't weighed down by a large batch approach, Alphabet was ready to pivot after just three months of investigation. Alphabet has eliminated many other potential markets as well, leading to a series of customer segment pivots. The company's current efforts are focused on manufacturing firms, which have the ability to experiment with new technologies in separate parts of their factory. This allows early adopters to evaluate the real-world benefits before committing to a larger Deployment. These early deployments are putting more of alphabets. Assumptions to the test. Unlike in the computer hardware business, customers are not willing to pay top dollar for maximum performance. This has required significant changes in alphabets product, configuring it to achieve the lowest cost per watt possible. All this experimentation has cost the company a tiny fraction of what other energy startups have consumed. To date, Alphabet has raised approximately $1 million. Only time will tell if they will prevail, but thanks to the power of small batches, they will be able to discover the truth much faster. 10. The Toyota production system is probably the most advanced system of management in the world, but even more impressive is the fact that Toyota has built the most advanced learning organization in history. It has demonstrated an ability to unleash the creativity of its employees, achieve consistent growth, and produce innovative new products relentlessly over the course of nearly a century. 
11. This is the kind of long-term success to which entrepreneurs should aspire. Although lean production techniques are powerful, they are only a manifestation of a high-functioning organization that is committed to achieving maximum performance by employing the right measures of progress over the long term. Process is only the foundation upon which a great company culture can develop. But without this foundation, efforts to encourage learning, creativity, and innovation will fall flat as many disillusioned directors of HR can attest. The lean startup works only if we are able to build an organization as adaptable and fast as the challenges it faces. This requires tackling the human challenges inherent in this new way of working, that is the subject of the remainder of part 3. The startup way. Please view the illustration. 10. Grow. I recently had two startups seek my advice on the same day. As types of businesses, they could not have been more different. The first is developing a marketplace to help traders of collectibles connect with one another. These people are hardcore fans of movies, anime, or comics who strive to put together complete collections of toys and other promotional merchandise related to the characters they love. The startup aspires to compete with online marketplaces such as eBay as well as physical marketplaces attached to conventions and other gatherings of fans. The second startup sells database software to enterprise customers. They have a next-generation database technology that can supplement or replace offerings from large companies such as Oracle, IBM, and SAP. Their customers are chief information officers, CIOs, IT managers, and engineers in some of the world's largest organizations. These are long lead time sales that require salespeople, sales engineering, installation support, and maintenance. Contracts. You could be forgiven for thinking these two companies have absolutely nothing in common, yet both came to me with the exact same problem. Each one had early customers and promising early revenue. They had validated and invalidated many hypotheses in their business models and were executing against their product roadmaps successfully. Their customers had provided a healthy mix of positive feedback and suggestions for improvements. Both companies had used their early success to raise money from outside investors. The problem was that neither company was growing. Both CEOs brought me identical-looking graphs showing that their early growth had flatlined. They could not understand why. They were acutely aware of the need to show progress to their employees and investors and came to me because they wanted advice on how to jumpstart their growth. Should they invest in more advertising or marketing programs? Should they focus on product quality or new features? Should they try to improve conversion rates or pricing? As it turns out, both companies share a deep similarity in the way their businesses grow and therefore a similar confusion about what to do. Both are using the same engine of growth, the topic of this chapter. Where does growth come from? The engine of growth is the mechanism that startups use to achieve sustainable growth. I use the word sustainable to exclude all one-time activities that generate a surge of customers but have no long-term impact, such as a single advertisement or a publicity stunt that might be used to jumpstart growth but could not sustain that growth for the long term. Sustainable growth is characterized by one simple rule. New customers come from the actions of past customers. There are four primary ways past customers drive sustainable growth. 1. Word of mouth. Embedded in most products is a natural level of growth that is caused by satisfied customers' enthusiasm for the product. For example, when I bought my first TVO DVR, I couldn't stop telling my friends and family about it. Pretty soon, my entire family was using one. 2. As a side effect of product usage. Fashion or status, such as luxury goods products, drive awareness of themselves whenever they are used. When you see someone dressed in the latest clothes or driving a certain car, you may be influenced to buy that product. This is also true of so-called viral products such as Facebook and PayPal. When a customer sends money to a friend using PayPal, the friend is exposed automatically to the PayPal product. 3. Through funded advertising. 
Most businesses employ advertising to entice new customers to use their products. For this to be a source of sustainable growth, the advertising must be paid for out of revenue, not one-time sources such as investment capital. As long as the cost of acquiring a new customer, the so-called marginal cost, is less than the revenue that customer generates, the marginal revenue, the excess, the marginal profit, can be used to acquire more customers. The more marginal profit, the faster the growth. 4. Through repeat purchase or use. Some products are designed to be purchased repeatedly either through a subscription plan, a cable company, or through voluntary repurchases, groceries or light bulbs. By contrast, many products and services are intentionally designed as one-time events, such as wedding planning. These sources of sustainable growth power feedback loops that I have termed engines of growth. Each is like a combustion engine, turning over and over. The faster the loop turns, the faster the company will grow. Each engine has an intrinsic set of metrics that determine how fast a company can grow when using it. The three engines of growth. We saw in part two how important it is for startups to use the right kind of metrics, actionable metrics, to evaluate their progress. However, this leaves a large amount of variety in terms of which numbers one should measure. In fact, one of the most expensive forms of potential waste for a startup is spending time arguing about how to prioritize new development once it has a product on the market. At any time, the company could invest its energy in finding new customers, servicing existing customers better, improving overall quality, or driving down costs. In my experience, the discussions about these kinds of priority decisions can consume a substantial fraction of the company's time. Engines of growth are designed to give startups a relatively small set of metrics on which to focus their energies. As one of my mentors, the venture capital investor Sean Carolyn, put it, startups don't starve, they drown. There are always a zillion new ideas about how to make the product better. Floating around, but the hard truth is that most of those ideas make a difference only at the margins. They are mere optimizations. Startups have to focus on the big experiments that lead to validated learning. The engines of growth framework helps them stay focused on the metrics that matter. The sticky engine of growth. This brings us back to the two startups that kicked off this chapter. Both are using the exact same engine of growth despite being in very different industries. Both products are designed to attract and retain customers for the long term. The underlying mechanism of that retention is different in the two cases. For the collectible company, the idea is to become the number one shopping destination for fanatical collectors. These are people who are constantly hunting for the latest items and the best deals. If the company's product works as designed, collectors who start using it will check constantly and repeatedly to see if new items are for sale as well as listing their own items for sale or trade. The startup database vendor relies on repeat usage for a very different reason. Database technology is used only as the foundation for a customer's own products, such as a website or a point-of-sale system. Once you build a product on top of a particular database technology, it is extremely difficult to switch. In the IT industry, such customers are said to be locked into the vendor they choose. For such a product to grow, it has to offer such a compelling new capability that customers are willing to risk being tied to a proprietary vendor for a potentially long time. Thus, both businesses rely on having a high customer retention rate. They have an expectation that once you start using their product, you will continue to do so. This is the same dynamic as a mobile telephone service provider, when a customer cancels his or her service, it generally means that he or she is extremely dissatisfied or is switching to a competitor's product. This is in contrast to, say, groceries on a store aisle. In the grocery retail business, customer tastes fluctuate, and if a customer buys a Pepsi this week instead of Coke, it's not necessarily a big deal. Therefore, companies using the sticky engine of growth track their attrition. Rate or churn rate very carefully. 
The churn rate is defined as the fraction of customers in any period who fail to remain engaged with the company's product. The rules that govern the sticky engine of growth are pretty simple. If the rate of new customer acquisition exceeds the churn rate, the product will grow. The speed of growth is determined by what I call the rate of compounding, which is simply the natural growth rate minus the churn rate. Like a bank account that earns compounding interest, having a high rate of compounding will lead to extremely rapid growth without advertising, viral growth, or publicity stunts. Unfortunately, both of these sticky startups were tracking their progress using generic indicators such as the total number of customers. Even the actionable metrics they were using, such as the activation rate and revenue per customer, weren't very helpful because in the sticky engine of growth, these variables have little impact on growth. In the sticky engine of growth, they are better suited to testing the value hypothesis that was discussed in Chapter 5. After our meeting, one of the two startups took me up on my advice to model its customer behavior by using the sticky engine of growth as a template. The results were striking, a 61% retention rate and a 39% growth rate of new customers. In other words, its churn rate and new customer acquisition balanced each other almost perfectly, leading to a compounding growth rate of just 0.02% almost zero. This is typical for companies in an engagement business that are struggling to find growth. An insider who worked at the dot-com-era company Pointcast once showed me how that company suffered a similar dysfunction. When Pointcast was struggling to grow, it was nonetheless incredibly successful in new customer acquisition, just like this sticky startup, 39% every period. Unfortunately, this growth is being offset by an equivalent amount of churn. Once it is modeled this way, the good news should be apparent, there are plenty of new customers coming in the door. The way to find growth is to focus on existing customers for the product even more engaging to them. 4. Example, the company could focus on getting more and better listings. This would create an incentive for customers to check back often. Alternatively, the company could do something more direct such as messaging them about limited-time sales or special offers. Either way, its focus needs to be on improving customer retention. This goes against the standard intuition in that if a company lacks growth, it should invest more in sales and marketing. This counterintuitive result is hard to infer from standard vanity metrics. The Viral Engine of Growth Online social networks and Tupperware are examples of products for which customers do the lion's share of the marketing. Awareness of the product spreads rapidly from person to person similarly to the way a virus becomes an epidemic. This is distinct from the simple word-of-mouth growth discussed above. Instead, products that exhibit viral growth depend on person-to-person -person transmission as a necessary consequence of normal product use. Customers are not intentionally acting as evangelists, they are not necessarily trying to spread the word about the product. Growth happens automatically as a side effect of customers using the product. Viruses are not optional. For example, one of the most famous viral success stories is a company called Hotmail. In 1996, Sabir Bottier and Jack Smith launched a new web-based email service that offered customers free accounts. At first, growth was sluggish, with only a small seed investment from the venture capital firm. Draper Fisher Jervetson, the Hotmail team could not afford an extensive marketing campaign. But everything changed when they made one small tweak to the product. They added to the bottom of every single email the message PS get your free email at Hotmail along with a clickable link. Within weeks, that small product change produced massive results. Within six months, Bottier and Smith had signed up more than one million new customers. Five weeks later, they hit the two million mark. Eighteen months after launching the service, with 12 million subscribers, they sold the company to Microsoft for $400 million. One the same phenomenon is at work in Tupperware's famous house parties, in which customers earn commissions by selling the product to their friends and neighbors. 
Every sales pitch is an opportunity not only to sell Tupperware products but also to persuade other customers to become Tupperware representatives. Tupperware parties are still going strong decades after they started. Many other contemporary companies, such as Pampered Chef, owned by Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, Southern Living, and Tastefully Simple, have adopted a similar model successfully. Like the other engines of growth, the viral engine is powered by a feedback loop that can be quantified. It is called the viral loop, and its speed is determined by a single mathematical term called the viral coefficient. The higher this coefficient is, the faster the product will spread. The viral coefficient measures how many new customers will use a product as a consequence of each new customer who signs up. Put another way, how many friends will each customer bring with him or her? Since each friend is also a new customer, he or she has an opportunity to recruit yet more friends. For a product with a viral coefficient of 0.1, one in every 10 customers will recruit one of his or her friends. This is not a sustainable loop. Imagine that 100 customers sign up. They will cause 10 friends to sign up. Those 10 friends will cause one additional person to sign up, but there the loop will fizzle out. By contrast, a viral loop with a coefficient that is greater than 1.0 will grow exponentially, because each person who signs up will bring, on average, more than one other person with him or her. To see these effects graphically, take a look at this chart, please view the illustration. Companies that rely on the viral engine of growth must focus on increasing the viral coefficient more than anything else, because even tiny changes in this number will cause dramatic changes in their future prospects. A consequence of this is that many viral products do not charge customers directly but rely on indirect sources of revenue such as advertising. This is the case because viral products cannot afford to have any friction impede the process of signing customers up and recruiting their friends. This can make testing the value hypothesis for viral products especially challenging. The true test of the value hypothesis is always a voluntary exchange of value between customers and the startup that serves them. A lot of confusion stems from the fact that this exchange can be monetary, as in the case of Tupperware, or non-monetary, as in the case of Facebook. In the viral engine of growth, monetary exchange does not drive new growth. It is useful only as an indicator that customers value the product enough to pay for it. If Facebook or Hotmail had started charging customers in their early days, it would have been foolish, as it would have impeded their ability to grow. However, it is not true that customers do not give these companies something of value. By investing their time and attention in the product, they make the product valuable to advertisers. Companies that sell advertising actually serve two different groups of customers, consumers and advertisers, and exchange a different currency of value with each. 2. This is markedly different from companies that actively use money to fuel. Their expansion, such as a retail chain that can grow as fast as it can fund the opening of new stores at suitable locations. These companies are using a different engine of growth altogether. The paid engine of growth. Imagine another pair of businesses. The first makes $1 on each customer it signs up, the second makes $100,000 from each customer it signs up. To predict which company will grow faster, you need to know only one additional thing, how much it costs to sign up a new customer. Imagine that the first company uses Google AdWords to find new customers online and pays an average of 80 cents each time a new customer joins. The second company sells heavy goods to large companies. Each sale requires a significant time investment from a salesperson and on-site sales engineering to help install the product. These hard costs total up to $80,000 per new customer. Both companies will grow at the exact same rate. Each has the same proportion of revenue, 20%, available to reinvest in new customer acquisition. If either company wants to increase its rate of growth, it can do so in one of two ways, increase the revenue from each customer or drive down. The cost of acquiring a new customer. That's the paid engine of growth at work.
In relating the IMVU story in Chapter 3, I talked about how we made a major early mistake in setting up the IMVU strategy. We ultimately wound up having to make an engine of growth pivot. We originally thought that our IM add-on strategy would allow the product to grow virally. Unfortunately, customers refused to go along with our brilliant strategy. Our basic misconception was a belief that customers would be willing to use IMVU as an add-on to existing instant messaging networks. We believed that the product would spread virally through those networks, passed from customer to customer. The problem with that theory is that some kinds of products are not compatible with viral growth. IMVU's customers didn't want to use the product with their existing friends. They wanted to use it to make new friends. Unfortunately, that meant they did not have a strong incentive to bring new customers to the product, they viewed that as our job. Fortunately, IMVU was able to grow by using paid advertising because our customers were willing to pay more for our product than it cost us to reach them via advertising. Like the other engines, the paid engine of growth is powered by a feedback loop. Each customer pays a certain amount of money for the product over his or her lifetime as a customer. Once variable costs are deducted, this usually is called the customer lifetime value, LTV. This revenue can be invested in growth by buying advertising. Suppose an advertisement costs $100 and causes 50 new customers to sign up for the service. This ad has a cost per acquisition, CPA, of $2. In this example, if the product has an LTV that is greater than $2, the product will grow. The margin between the LTV and the CPA determines how fast the paid engine of growth will turn, this is called the marginal profit. Conversely, if the CPA remains at $2 but the LTV falls below $2, the company's growth will slow. It may make up the difference with one-time tactics such as using invested capital or publicity stunts, but those tactics are not sustainable. This was the fate of many failed companies, including notable dot-com flameouts that erroneously believed that they could lose money on each customer but, as the old joke goes, make it up in volume. Although I have explained the paid engine of growth in terms of advertising, it is far broader than that. Startups that employ an outbound sales force are also using this engine, as are retail companies that rely on foot traffic. All these costs should be factored into the cost per acquisition. For example, one startup I worked with built collaboration tools for teams and groups. It went through a radical pivot, switching from a tool that was used primarily by hobbyists and small clubs to one that was sold primarily to enterprises, non-governmental organizations, NGOs, and other extremely large organizations. However, they made that customer segment pivot without changing their engine of growth. Previously, they had done customer acquisition online, using web-based direct marketing techniques. I remember one early situation in which the company fielded a call from a major NGO that wanted to buy its product and roll it out across many divisions. The startup had an unlimited pricing plan, its most expensive, that cost only a few hundred dollars per month. The NGO literally could not make the purchase because it had no process in place for buying something so inexpensive. Additionally, the NGO needed substantial help in managing the rollout, educating its staff on the new tool, and tracking the impact of the change, those were all services the company was ill-equipped to offer. Changing customer segments required them to switch to hiring a sizable outbound sales staff that spent time attending conferences, educating executives, and authoring white papers. Those much higher costs came with a corresponding reward. The company switched from making only a few dollars per customer to making tens and then hundreds of thousands of dollars per much larger customer. Their new engine of growth led to sustained success. Most sources of customer acquisition are subject to competition. For example, prime retail storefronts have more foot traffic and are therefore more valuable. Similarly, advertising that is targeted to more affluent customers generally costs more than advertising that reaches the general public. What determines these prices is the average value earned in aggregate by the companies that are in competition for any given customer's attention. 
Wealthy consumers cost more to reach because they tend to become more profitable customers. Over time, any source of customer acquisition will tend to have its CPA bid up by this competition. If everyone in an industry makes the same amount of money on each sale, they all will wind up paying most of their marginal profit to the source of acquisition. Thus, the ability to grow in the long term by using the paid engine requires a differentiated ability to monetize a certain set of customers. IMVU is a case in point. Our customers were not considered very lucrative by other online services, they included a lot of teenagers, low-income adults, and international customers. Other services tended to assume those people would not pay for anything online. At IMVU, we developed techniques for collecting online payments from customers who did not have a credit card, such as allowing them to bill to their mobile phones or send us cash in the mail. Therefore, we could afford to pay more to acquire those customers than our competitors could. A technical caveat. Technically, more than one engine of growth can operate in a business at a time. For example, there are products that have extremely fast viral growth as well as extremely low customer churn rates. Also, there is no reason why a product cannot have both high margins and high retention. However, in my experience, successful startups usually focus on just one engine of growth, specializing in everything that is required to make it work. Companies that attempt to build a dashboard that includes all three engines tend to cause a lot of confusion because the operations expertise required to model all these effects simultaneously is quite complicated. Therefore, I strongly recommend that startups focus on one engine at a time. Most entrepreneurs already have a strong leap of faith hypothesis about which engine is most likely to work. If they do not, time spent out of the building with customers will quickly suggest one that seems profitable. Only after pursuing one engine thoroughly should a startup consider a pivot to one of the others. Engines of growth determine product market fit. Mark Andreessen, the legendary entrepreneur and investor and one of the fathers of the World Wide Web, coined the term product market fit to describe the moment when a startup finally finds a widespread set of customers that resonate with its product. In a great market, a market with lots of real potential customers, the market pulls product out of the startup. This is the story of search. Keyword advertising, internet auctions, and TCP IP Reuters. Conversely, in a terrible market, you can have the best product in the world and an absolutely killer team, and it doesn't matter you're going to fail. 3. When you see a startup that has found a fit with a large market, it's exhilarating. It leaves no room for doubt. It is Ford's Model T flying out of the factory as fast as it could be made, Facebook sweeping college campuses practically overnight, or Lotus taking the business world by storm, selling $54 million worth of Lotus 123 in its first year of operation. Startups occasionally ask me to help them evaluate whether they have achieved product market fit. It's easy to answer, if you are asking, you're not there yet. Unfortunately, this doesn't help companies figure out how to get closer to product market fit. How can you tell if you are on the verge of success or hopelessly far away? Although I don't think Andreessen intended this as part of his definition, to many entrepreneurs it implies that a pivot is a failure event our startup has failed to achieve product market fit. It also implies the inverse, that once our Product has achieved product market fit, we won't have to pivot anymore. Both assumptions are wrong. I believe the concept of the engine of growth can put the idea of product market fit on a more rigorous footing. Since each engine of growth can be defined quantitatively, each has a unique set of metrics that can be used to evaluate whether a startup is on the verge of achieving product market fit. A startup with a viral coefficient of 0.9 or more is on the verge of success. Even better, the metrics for each engine of growth work in tandem with the innovation accounting model discussed in Chapter 7 to give direction to a startup's product development efforts. For example, if a startup is attempting to use the viral engine of growth, it can focus its development efforts on things that might affect customer behavior on the viral loop and safely ignore those that do not. 
Such a startup does not need to specialize in marketing, advertising, or sales functions. Conversely, a company using the paid engine needs to develop those marketing and sales functions urgently. A startup can evaluate whether it is getting closer to product market fit as it tunes its engine by evaluating each trip through the build measure learn feedback loop using innovation accounting. What really matters is not the raw numbers or vanity metrics but the direction and degree of progress. For example, imagine two startups that are working diligently to tune the sticky engine of growth. One has a compounding rate of growth of 5%, and the other 10%. Which company is the better bet? On the surface, it may seem that the larger rate of growth is better, but what if each company's innovation accounting dashboard looks like the following chart? Please view the illustration. Even with no insight into these two companies' gross numbers, we can tell that company A is making real progress whereas company B is stuck in the mud. This is true even though company B is growing faster than company A right now when engines run out. Getting a startup's engine of growth up and running is hard enough, but the truth is that every engine of growth eventually runs out of gas. Every engine is tied to a given set of customers and their related habits, preferences, advertising channels, and interconnections. At some point, that set of customers will be exhausted. This may take a long time or a short time, depending on one's industry and timing. Chapter 6 emphasized the importance of building the minimum viable product in such a way that it contains no additional features beyond what is required by early adopters. Following that strategy successfully will unlock an engine of growth that can reach that target audience. However, making the transition to mainstream customers will require tremendous additional work. For once we have a product that is growing among early adopters, we could in theory stop work in product development entirely. The product would continue to grow until it reached the limits of that early market. Then growth would level off or even stop completely. The challenge comes from the fact that this slowdown might take months or even years to take place. Recall from Chapter 8 that IMVU failed this test at first for precisely this reason. Some unfortunate companies wind up following this strategy inadvertently. Because they are using vanity metrics and traditional accounting, they think they are making progress when they see their numbers growing. They falsely believe they are making their product better when in fact they are having no impact on customer behavior. The growth is all coming from an engine of growth that is working running efficiently to bring in new customers not from improvements driven by product development. Thus, when the growth suddenly slows, it provokes a crisis. This is the same problem that established companies experience. Their past successes were built on a finely tuned engine of growth. If that engine runs its course and growth slows or stops, there can be a crisis if the company does not have new startups incubating within its ranks that can provide new sources of growth. Companies of any size can suffer from this perpetual affliction. They need to manage a portfolio of activities, simultaneously tuning their engine of growth and developing new sources of growth for when that engine inevitably runs its course. How to do this is the subject of chapter 12. However, before we can manage that portfolio, we need an organizational structure, culture, and discipline that can handle these rapid and often unexpected changes. I call this an adaptive organization, and it is the subject of chapter 11. 11. Adapt. When I was the CTO of IMVU, I thought I was doing a good job most of the time. I had built an agile engineering organization, and we were successfully experimenting with the techniques that would come to be known as the lean startup. However, on a couple of occasions I suddenly realized that I was failing at my job. For an achievement-oriented person, that is incredibly disarming. Worst of all, you don't get a memo. If you did, it would read something like this. Dear Eric, congratulations. The job you used to do at this company is no longer available. However, you have been transferred to a new job in the company. Actually, it's not the same company anymore, even though it has the same name and many of the same people. 
And although the job has the same title, too, and you used to be good at your old job, you're already failing at the new one. This transfer is effective as of six months ago, so this is to alert you that you've already been failing at it for quite some time. Best of luck. Every time this happened to me, I struggled to figure out what to do. I knew that as the company grew, we would need additional processes and systems designed to coordinate the company's operations at each larger size. And yet I had also seen many startups become ossified and bureaucratic out of a misplaced desire to become professional. Having no system at all was not an option for IMVU and is not an option for you. There are so many ways for a startup to fail. I've lived through the over-architecture failure, in which attempting to prevent all the various kinds of problems that could occur wound up delaying the company from putting out any product. I've seen companies fail the other way from the so-called friend's toe effect, suffering a high-profile technical failure just when customer adoption is going wild. As a department executive, this outcome is worst of all, because the failure is both high-profile and attributable to a single function or department yours. Not only will the company fail, it will be your fault. Most of the advice I've heard on this topic has suggested a kind of split-the-difference approach, as in, engage in a little planning, but not too much. The problem with this willy-nilly approach is that it's hard to give any rationale for why we should anticipate one particular problem but ignore another. It can feel like the boss is being capricious or arbitrary, and that feeds the common feeling that management's decisions conceal an ulterior motive. For those being managed this way, their incentives are clear. If the boss tends to split the difference, the best way to influence the boss and get what you want is to take the most extreme position possible. For example, if one group is advocating for an extremely lengthy release cycle, say, an annual new product introduction, you might choose to argue for an equally extremely short release cycle, perhaps weekly or even daily, knowing that the two opinions will be averaged out. Then, when the difference is split, you're likely to get an outcome closer to what you actually wanted in the first place. Unfortunately, this kind of arms race escalates. Rivals in another camp are likely to do the same thing. Over time, everyone will take the most polarized positions possible, which makes splitting the difference ever more difficult and ever less successful. Managers have to take responsibility for knowingly or inadvertently creating such incentives. Although it was not their intention to reward extreme polarization, that's exactly what they are doing. Getting out of this trap requires a significant shift in thinking. Building an adaptive organization. Should a startup invest in a training program for new employees? If you had asked me a few years ago, I would have laughed and said, absolutely not. Training programs are for big companies that can afford them. Yet at IMVU we wound up building a training program that was so good. New hires were productive on their first day of employment. Within just a few weeks, those employees were contributing at a high level. It required a huge effort to standardize our work processes and prepare a curriculum of the concepts that new employees should learn. Every new engineer would be assigned a mentor, who would help the new employee work through a curriculum of systems, concepts, and techniques he or she would need to become productive at IMVU. The performance of the mentor and mentee were linked, so the mentors took this education seriously. What is interesting, looking back at this example, is that we never stopped work and decided that we needed to build a great training program. Instead, the training program evolved organically out of a methodical approach to evolving our own process. This process of orientation was subject to constant experimentation and revision so that it grew more effective and less burdensome over time. I call this building an adaptive organization, one that automatically adjusts its process and performance to current conditions. Can you go too fast? So far this book has emphasized the importance of speed. Startups are in a life-or-death struggle to learn how to build a sustainable business before they run out of resources and die. However, focusing on speed alone would be destructive. To work, startups require built-in speed regulators that help teams find their optimal pace of work. 
We saw an example of speed regulation in Chapter 9 with the use of the Andam cord in systems such as continuous deployment. It is epitomized in the paradoxical Toyota proverb, stop production so that production never has to stop. The key to the Andam cord is that it brings work to a stop as soon as an uncorrectable quality problem surfaces, which forces it to be investigated. This is one of the most important discoveries of the lean manufacturing movement, you cannot trade quality for time. If you are causing, or missing, quality problems now, the resulting defects will slow you down later. Defects Cause a lot of rework, low morale, and customer complaints, all of which slow. Progress and eat away at valuable resources. So far I have used the language of physical products to describe these problems, but that is simply a matter of convenience. Service businesses have the same challenges. Just ask any manager of a training, staffing, or hospitality. Fam to show you the playbook that specifies how employees are supposed to deliver the service under various conditions. What might have started out as a simple guide tends to grow inexorably over time. Pretty soon, orientation is incredibly complex and employees have invested a lot of time and energy in learning the rules. Now consider an entrepreneurial manager in that kind of company trying to experiment with new rules or procedures. The higher quality the existing playbook is, the easier it will be for it to evolve over time. By contrast, a low-quality playbook will be filled with contradictory or ambiguous rules that cause confusion when anything is changed. When I teach the lean startup approach to entrepreneurs with an engineering background, this is one of the hardest concepts to grasp. On the one hand, the logic of validated learning and the minimum viable product says that we should get a product into customers' hands as soon as possible and that any extra work we do beyond what is required to learn from customers is waste. On the other hand, the build-measure-learn feedback loop is a continuous process. We don't stop after one minimum viable product but use what we have learned to get to work immediately on the next iteration. Therefore, shortcuts taken in product quality, design, or infrastructure today may wind up slowing a company down tomorrow. You can see this paradox in action at IMVU. Chapter 3 recounted how we wound up shipping a product to customers that was full of bugs, missing features, and bad design. The customers wouldn't even try that product, and so most of that work had to be thrown away. It's a good thing we didn't waste a lot of time fixing those bugs and cleaning up that early version. However, as our learning allowed us to build products that customers did want, we faced slowdowns. Having a low-quality product can inhibit learning when the defects prevent customers from experiencing and giving feedback. On, the product's benefits. In IMVU's case, as we offered the product to more mainstream customers, they were much less forgiving than early adopters had been. Similarly, the more features we added to the product, the harder it became to add even more because of the risk that a new feature would interfere with an existing feature. The same dynamics happen in a service business, since any new rules may conflict with existing rules, and the more rules, the more possibilities for conflict. IMVU used the techniques of this chapter to achieve scale and quality in a just-in-time fashion. The wisdom of the five whys. To accelerate, lean startups need a process that provides a natural feedback loop. When you're going too fast, you cause more problems. Adaptive processes force you to slow down and invest in preventing the kinds of problems that are currently wasting time. As those preventive efforts pay off, you naturally speed up again. Let's return to the question of having a training program for new employees. Without a program, new employees will make mistakes while in their learning curve that will require assistance and intervention from other team members, slowing everyone down. How do you decide if the investment in training is worth the benefit of speed due to reduced interruptions? Figuring this out from a top-down perspective is challenging, because it requires estimating two completely unknown quantities, how much it will cost to build an unknown program against an unknown benefit you might reap. Even worse, the Traditional way to make these kinds of decisions is decidedly large batch. Thinking. 
a company either has an elaborate training program or it does not. Until they can justify the return on investment from building a full program, most companies generally do nothing. The alternative is to use a system called the five whys to make incremental investments and evolve a startup's processes gradually. The core idea of five whys is to tie investments directly to the prevention of the most problematic symptoms. The system takes its name from the investigative method of asking the question why, five times to understand what has happened, the root cause. If you've ever had to answer a precocious child who wants to know why is the sky blue, and keeps asking why, after each answer, you're familiar with it. This technique was developed as a systematic problem-solving tool by Taiki Ono.